for you. I'm going to invite to the stage now uh, my colleague and the new vice chair of the network's board, Jesse Salazar. Jesse? So everyone in communications know how, knows how frustrating it can be when your colleagues are absolutely certain that they know how to do your job. Um, <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> you know, they have met a journalist before, or you know, they once wrote a blog post, um, or they read the New York Times. Um, well, our next speaker has the same issue, but with comedy. People are always trying to be funny around him, but the Academy of Television Arts and Sciences has four separate times determined that he is, in fact, the best comedy writer. And I don't need to tell you how amazing The Daily Show is. I'm sure you've seen it at some point. Um, but you're about to hear from a guy who spent the last 12 or 13 years helping Jon Stewart to turn The Daily Show into television legend. Um, and Steve Harvey once said, you can take lessons to become almost anything. Flying lessons, piano lessons, singing lessons, but there's no class for comedy. You have to be born with it. God has to give you that gift. Well, Elliot Kalin is a gift from God, and I hope you all enjoy your gift. That was about as overhyped as I've ever been, I think. That's, it's going to get worse. That was amazing. So I've got my phone here because we've got Twitter questions coming in. So I'm going to be that person who occasionally looks down to see what's going on. I'm going to keep checking my phone just to see voicemails. What time it is, or like, <laughs> did this podcast download properly? Exactly. So just be ready for that. I thought we would start off with something fun. Um, I wanted to play a little game of quick fire, one word, and you give me your one word answer. Okay. Does that work? Oh, okay. wait, first I should say thank you to everybody for, for having me here. Okay, that's, I had to say that. <laughs> okay. So one, only one word. Only one word. Okay. okay. And this might be hard. Okay. okay. Uh, comic books. Reality. <laughs> Abraham Lincoln. Toilet, but I'll, I have to explain that. Because <laughs> that, there's a good reason for that, but it's not, it's the, I don't know, maybe we can talk about we'll that. Come back, we'll come yeah. back to Abe's toilet. Yeah. Uh, writing. Compulsion. Writing music. Judas Priest, which is technically two words, but it's a name, so that's one word. Right? I'm going to let you have that one. Okay. Okay. So metal, generally. Metal, yeah, yeah. Okay. But these days, particularly Judas Priest. Okay. Uh, sitcom writing. Potential. Okay. Emmy. Unexpected. Legacy. Unfinished. John Stewart. <laughs> I don't know. There's no, there's no one word that sums him up. That's impossible. He contains multitudes. He's... He does contain multitudes. I'd say the boss. Okay. And he would say that Bruce Springsteen is the boss. <laughs> but I would say that he is. 
You're, you're both right. Yeah, yeah. You're I mean, right. there's there's multiple bosses there's in the world, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> multitudes of bosses. There's room for multitudes of bosses within the world. <laughs> How did you end up writing for Jon Stewart at The Daily Show? Um, I started there about, uh, I think as, as uh, Jesse mentioned, about 13 years ago as an intern uh, when I was in college. I went to NYU for college to study screenwriting, which so far has not paid off. <laughs> and in that, I, there are, if any, there are any film producers in the audience, uh, get in touch with me. Uh, <laughs> but uh, the, I interned there my last semester of school. Uh, my dad met somebody who worked there. Uh, this guy, Paul Penalino, who's one of the directors of the show, who's maybe the nicest man in the world. Uh, and because my dad has no shame and will say anybody, anything to anybody, he was like, oh, you, my son likes that show a lot. He should intern there. Why don't I have him send you his information? And he, being the nicest man in the world, he said, OK, sure. And I got that internship and then made some kind of impression as an intern. And they asked me to stay on as a production assistant because a position opened up. And then I just kind of kept kind of like weaseling my way up the ranks, you know, stabbing people in the back and like stepping on people. and. It was a it was a real like uh, it was a real like Wolf Hall type, type scenario, you know. I, but no, the uh, opportunities kept opening up there, and uh, I'd been a fan of the show since it started with Craig Kilborn, and then uh, very much so, even more so, when John took over. And when I was in college, I used to watch it at 11 o'clock when it first aired, and then I'd watch the one o'clock rerun of that same show because I wanted to like see it again. And I wanted to figure out how, how it worked and everything like that. Uh, and I didn't think I'd ever, it's like I didn't think I'd ever get to work there. And then when, even when I was working there, I didn't think I'd ever get to write there. And then when I was writing there, I didn't think I'd ever get to be the head writer there. And then that happened too. And then, like Alexander, there were no more worlds left to conquer. So, you know, so, <laughs> so I wept, you know. Uh, and uh, so it was just a lot of, it was a lot of hard work and a lot of opportunities opening up, you know. I can only, I feel like I can take like, 45% of the credit for my position there. It seems like a lot of work and, and um, kind of a trajectory that was... Maybe 85% of the credit. <laughs> there you go, okay. <laughs> yeah. That's a little bit more right. In his opening monologue on Monday night, uh, The Daily Show's new host, Trevor Noah, mm -hmm. called Jon Stewart more than just a late night host. He was often our voice, our refuge, and in many ways, our political dad. When I heard that, I thought, wow, that means Elliot Kalon is actually the voice of dad, which made me really feel like we were having an opportunity to talk to somebody who's really plugged into creating that voice. Uh, in a way, uh, John, by the time I was working with John, his voice was so complete in and of itself in a lot of ways. Like, his, the, the, it feels like I was helping, I don't, I don't want to keep saying dad. I think that's that. Right. Even though, like, when I was watching the show as a, when I was younger, like, I really kind of felt that way. And my own feelings about the show and being there for so long and, and having, it was a real, like, family atmosphere there, so complicated. So that there was a feeling, uh, like, uh, sometimes that John was show dad. And the, uh, when he went off to make his movie and John Oliver took over, it was like, why did dad leave us? But, that's, but then he came back. But, uh, but it, it was like helping, helping him to best continue to express that voice in a way that was consist, consistent to itself, but also not 
not redundant or repetitive, I guess. It was a lot of, I would say to people who were submitting to be writers, show us how your voice fits into the voice of the show. Like, what do you bring to the show that's different from what we have now, but is not so wildly different that it clashes with it? And that my job as a writer was to write the jokes that John wanted to tell, but wouldn't necessarily think of himself, uh, or a joke that he, didn't, he would have thought of if he had had the time to sit and focus on it, but didn't have that time. Or, uh, and much of the time, I was able to get his voice right. And then other times, too much of my voice would sneak into my scripts, and there'd be a joke about gremlins or something like that, you know, that, you know or <laughs> Ghostbusters that was not going to get on the show. This is before, the, before we went on stage, Kimberly asked if we could get a drink at some point during it. So I just want to know that this has nothing to do with me. I'm totally throwing you under the bus on this one. Yeah. That's OK. Since you're here, I'll take a tequila. Thank you. <laughs> the best you've got. I don't want you to drink alone. So I'll thank you. So I'll have uh, Jack and Coke, please. Jack and Coke. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. All right, perfect. <laughs> I'll go ahead and get that shot. Okay, thank, thank you. Thank you. Put it on Sean's So this, the second half of this is going to be much less oh, yeah. focused than the first half. <laughs> yeah. It's going to ramble a little bit. Yeah. Um, well, so I want to pick up, though, on what you were just talking about, because um, one of the things that we have in common here in a room full of communicators and writers, um, all of us have been in a place where we're really writing somebody else's voice. And, mm -hmm. and you describe that sort of challenge of both writing for somebody, but also having your own unique voice that's your own, that weaves into the voice of the people you're writing for. How do you do that? Uh, it can be tough, and I'm sure people here have, have that problem too, where it's you would say something a certain way, but the person you're writing for would not say it that way, or would want to make a slightly different point, or, and sometimes it helped to think of some, whoever I was writing for, whether it was John or one of the correspondents, as a character rather than as a person, and maybe that was because my, it, my school background was in screenwriting, but it was like, okay, the character of John is in this situation, what would he say then, or how would he put it, and that would help me to break out of this structure of my own voice, that it was less, I'm writing a thing for someone to say, but I'm writing a thing for this character to say. And John is not a character, he's a person. Yeah. But uh, to think of a, a, another person as a character helps sometimes to, like I use it sometimes to, if I'm in a disagreement with somebody, or someone and I have had some kind of bad air between us, I go, well, if, I, if they were a character, why would they act that way? And like, what would, what would cause them to feel the other way? And it works sometimes. Oftentimes it doesn't work, but sometimes it does. But in, it helped to depersonalize it a little bit and uh, make it a little easier. But also just always being, always listening to, to the person you're going to be writing for. Or I guess if it's an institution, like the sense of that institution. So that uh, sometimes writing stuff for John, I knew that if he had used a phrase a couple times in meetings, that's a good thing to put in. Like if he had uh, expressed a particular idea then I could, I could maybe hone that idea slightly, but I wanted to include that, because if he's saying it 
around behind the scenes, then it means he feels that way, and he's going to want a, a joke off of that or a, a point off of that is going to be that much more valuable to him than if uh, I just wrote an amazing joke about Ghostbusters, which I did many times, and they <laughs> never got on the show. And every now and then I'd get a joke on about like Predator 2, you know, or some other some other 80s sci-fi action movie, but but not Ghostbusters. For some reason, Ghostbusters just did never made the cut when I was. Other people wrote Ghostbusters books, Ghostbusters jokes. They ended up on. Not me. I don't know what it is. Just a bad record. But uh, there was always that tension between how would what would be the type of thing I would say or the type of joke I would want to make, yeah. and would that fit John's voice? And if it didn't fit John's voice, then it would have to go. And there'd be a certain amount of like, alienation is a weird word to use for it, but kind of like that, where you get you feel distance from the work and you have to find your way to it so that you don't feel that distance and you can write it truthfully to the voice that you're writing in. If that doesn't sound too abstract or conceptual or it sounds anything. very writerly. Oh yeah, well I've been practicing being a writer since <laughs> now, I've got all this time on my hands these days, so. It sounds like John Stewart was a great teacher for you. Yes, very much. Both so. in terms of like your style, but also in terms of um, the the lessons that he taught about uh, how you could be a better writer generally, not just how you could be a better comedic writer. He uh, very yeah, very much so. I feel like the role that all these like show obits that were written when when uh, when he announced he was leaving were all about what a like political teacher he was or a political communicator and. A thing that I think didn't get touched on very much, because I don't know if it's as noticeable if you're not in the room with him uh, every day, is he, his, he had a very big emphasis on what he would call doing things actively. That we have to actively manage this, we have to actively write this, let's look at this actively. Meaning, rather than just kind of writing by gut or by instinct, or just kind of sitting back and letting things happen, or doing the show in such a way that it's like, this story happened, we know how to cover these, all right, we'll do this, we'll do this, sound by joke, sound by joke, sound by joke, great, we're done, okay, everybody, you know, that you would be actively thinking all the time, how do I make this as good as I can, how do I look at this situation and find a, if it was a management thing, find a solution to it, rather than just reacting to what was going on, how can I, if I know something is gonna happen, you know, a couple weeks down, if we have a you know presidential election coming up in a couple weeks, let's start actively thinking about things we can do while we cover that or in the build up to it rather than just waiting for it to happen and then doing something off of that. And I feel like that's the thing that, that I took from it the most and applied to my own writing the most, that I can say, I wanna become a better writer than instead of just writing a lot and hoping that I get better, which will help a little bit. I'm gonna look at actively at my work and say, how do I do this and how can I do it better? And so one of the things I did was, for instance, I came up with a series of like steps that I could go through to write a joke when I was having trouble writing a joke, where I'd be like, I know there's something funny here, so what does my brain do unconsciously when a joke pops in on its own? How can I do that consciously? And uh, formulating that as a series of steps I could go through that would help me. And it felt like the show process throughout the day had been designed in a similar way. Like, how can we have a series of steps to go through so that we are not either waiting for things to happen, but we, uh, but we have a way to guide us through the day? I feel like I'm very confusing. But, uh, <laughs> but, but doing things actively. Uh, and it's, and that, was the, that was the thing that, that he taught me that I feel like has made the most 
difference for me and most impression on me that that uh, I don't have to just kind of like float through life like I'm a writer I guess I'll write okay I wrote that gotta go that's it but I can say like I can look at my own work and say how can I make this better and how can I make my writing process better so that I'm a little fewer steps ahead next time I try to write something. What is that? This is all very dry. What does that look? No, what is that? What is more jokes for writers? What does that look like? Like uh, you were talking about the the way the day was laid out to make that easier. So like uh, our our daily process was it was kind of based around meetings and scripts and then meetings again. So it's like. We have a meeting where everybody talks about things, uh, and John tells us kind of what he wants to do in the morning for that day's show, and we discuss it and try to figure out jokes for it. And then that gets assigned to writers, and they write a script, and then John and the executive producers and the head writer read that script and give notes, and then those writers go off again and rewrite based on those notes. And in that first meeting, we might be set in one place, and then after the script, when we have that second meeting with the notes, we might have veered off in a totally different direction. Veered off makes it sound like we're wildly out of control. But we might have, we might have decided to turn in a different direction. Uh, and then it would go, we would, they would write that, and we'd go back and look at, note, look at it again and, and get more notes. There'd be another rewrite, and there'd be a rehearsal, and then there'd be another rewrite after that. And it was, at each stage, we were focused on kind of like, oh, here are the drinks, yeah. <laughs> Awesome. You came just in time. I was talking for too long. The I'll finish it in a second. This is, this is this is the best stuff because it's all like dead air kind of like. Thank you very much. Thank you. you did a great job. Thank you. I much appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers. Or like, for, I think uh, a good way to illustrate might be, so I came up with this joke writing process. Yeah. So it's like, okay, there's a sound bite. John Boehner said something dumb. And I know there's something, I know there's something absurd about it, but I'm, a joke is not popping into my head the way it sometimes does. So I know there's something crazy about what he said. So let me describe that to myself in a straightforward way, not as a joke. What's the most absurd way he said it? Okay, now that I know what the kind of the, the kernel of it is, What's, the, what's a way I can communicate that? What are the different joke forms that I know? Does John talk to him directly? Does John continue John Boehner's thought in a way that heightens that absurdity? Does John throw to, does he make an analogy? Or does he, like, and after I, okay, I picked the form that I think is best for that type of, what he said, what type of joke will come off of that? Then how can I, looking at that joke now the way I have it, how can I make it less expected? That was the first thing I thought of. What's the second thing I'm thinking of so that I'm that much farther ahead of the audience? And so it was like this process that I could take myself through so I wasn't just like, ah, oh, <laughs> uh. and then and setting like a time limit for myself. Like if I don't come up with this joke in like four minutes, I'm gonna move on to something else and then maybe I'll come back and I'll leave the front part of my brain, I'll move on to something else and I'll let the back part of my brain think about it for a while because maybe he'll come up with something. And, uh, <laughs> And by making that process, I feel like it, it allowed me to improve my writing kind of as I was writing. And also to, my, when I handed in a script, it was farther along in the writing process than if I had just kind of put down the first thing that I thought of or said like, eh, I can't think of a joke. I just won't put this in, you know. Yeah. Uh, many times, 
those jokes didn't work anyway. So I don't want people to think it's a, it's a, fail, it's a foolproof strategy. Uh, Are we talking about Ghostbusters again? Uh, it's mo a lot of those Ghostbusters jokes, yeah, yeah. I, I cannot overemphasize how often I would turn to Ghostbusters as a source of, <laughs> as a source of humor, but purely out of love. Well, we're here. Yeah, thank we're you. <laughs> but and now I'm trying, I'm trying to bring that type of active focus into other types of writing, you know, to make it, so it's not just jokes, but it's other things, you know. So I feel like that's, that's what I picked up the most, you know. Other writing that you're doing now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. Not other people's writing. Not, <laughs> not like reading Shakespeare and being like, mm, well, maybe if he did this instead. <laughs> it's like pretty obvious that they die at the end. What if instead they did something different, you know? It might work. Maybe. Now I'm going to want to go up and like improve all of his plays. And like, <laughs> he, was, he was working out, because he was, I went to, this is a total tangent that is not going to be productive to anybody, but uh, uh, in this summer, uh, my wife and my son and I, we went to England to visit my sister who lives in London, and we took a trip to, a day trip to Stratford, and we were looking at Shakespeare's grave, and it struck me that like what I do and what he did are two totally different things, but at the same time, he was writing like, am, like ambitious stuff at a very fast rate for what he thought was a very temporary audience, not expecting it to outlast the season that it uh, you know, appeared in, and was just kind of like probably not too many steps ahead of where he needed to be when he was writing, whenever he was doing it, and he just happened to be a genius, so things came out differently. But uh, the, you know, they came out great, but I, was, I felt this real kinship with him of like, oh yeah, well we're all writers, I guess. Like, <laughs> it's, not, it's not like when Shakespeare was writing, he was like, I'm Shakespeare. Like, <laughs> In 400 years, people are still going to be quoting me. He was like, I've got to get this thing written. And these actors are not going to do it the way I want them to. And I've got to, whatever, like, I'll just get it out. Like, I've got to, I've got to do this thing, you know. How do, how do I focus? It was, it was, and it was very inspiring to me to be, to be like, oh, no matter what you're writing, like, you're still, you're still a writer under the same pressures, you know. I love that that's the parallel. The genius. Yeah. I mean, it's, but then, uh. Like, I don't think anyone's going to come visit my grave, you know, in, in, in 400 years. You know, that's, that's, the, that's where the parallel ends. So, but as far as he knew, he was like, I'm making a pretty good living as a writer these days. This is really good. Like, I'm not, I went from solidly lower middle class to solidly upper middle class. Like, this is pretty nice, you know. I like that analogy. Yeah. <laughs> um, so one of the things that you talked about, other writings uh, that you do, um, I'm sure a lot of people here who are fans of comic books are familiar with your... Um, uh, a lot of comic book fans in the audience. A lot of comic book yeah. fans in the audience, I'm sure. We, Scattered we're, we're nerds strong here, so I know they're here. Um, you've written uh, for Marvel Comics, and yeah. you've written Spider-Man, uh, which is a huge thing. Which, that was my dream, yeah. That was your dream. Yeah. Tell me about that. If there, well, uh, so there was a year, a few years ago, in the same year, I won an Emmy, and I got engaged, and Marvel bought my first story that I sold to them. And like Marvel, the Marvel sale was uh, like very strongly the second best thing that happened that year. <laughs> After they went engagement, and then right underneath that was selling a story to Marvel. And then I mean, it was it was still great, but it was like not on the same level. Like because I've been wanting to do that since I was a kid, you know. And and Spider-Man is if there's two if there's two ethical figures in my life who who teach me the way to live, it's Spider-Man and Abraham Lincoln, so. And I'm never gonna get the chance to work with Abraham Lincoln, so, I, so I'm working with Spider-Man instead, but. So that was pretty fantastic, that was That's amazing. Huge. Yeah. 
I should say amazing and not fantastic, because he's the amazing he's Spider-Man. He's amazing Spider-Man. Yeah, not fa- yeah, I can use amazing, spectacular, or web of to describe <laughs> Spider-Man, because those are his title prefixes, but Fantastic's a different set of characters, so, yeah. The four, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, tell me about, the, actually, since you're on Abraham Lincoln, you're, you're also a huge fan of Abraham Lincoln. Yeah, yeah. Um, you've named your son. His, his middle name is Lincoln, is yeah. Lincoln? I wanted his first name to be Lincoln, and my wife would not hear of it, so, <laughs> so that was not. But that. she's colluded with you on your obsession with, with Lincoln. Sure. Yeah. Well, it's it's such a it's it's like you know freight train barreling down the tracks. Like you gotta either get on board or get out of the way. That's <laughs> that's that is how it is with me and Abraham Lincoln. But so they uh, like a uh, he's a uh, and the one of the one of the worst. The only joke I regret writing at the Daily Show, although I'm pretty proud of it, but I regret it still. Is one that was an Abraham Lincoln joke that was like it was a fairly tasteless joke about. Uh, the, or not tasteless, there was when Barack Obama had just become president, and there was a news story about what dolls his daughters were seen carrying around, and they were like, there is some, uh, you know, it's important to cover this on the news. It's important to cover this stuff because first children are often the, the cause, you know, believe, uh, that often begin national trends when Amy Carter did some such thing. Other kids started doing it too. And I wasn't a writer yet at the time, but in a meeting I suggested the joke, or in, uh, or in the 1860s, when uh, Abraham Lincoln's son, Eddie Lincoln, or was it Willie? Willie Lincoln began, began the national craze of dying of cholera. And it was like, <laughs> and that's a solid joke. <laughs> but it's like, it's a joke about the death of his son, and it's something that really, like, he was never quite the same afterwards, and his wife spiraled into madness, and like, it's, I feel so bad about it. It's really terrible, but, and like, if I, like, if there's an afterlife and I meet him, like, how do I explain, like? <laughs> Like, no, you understand, that was a solid joke. I was making a solid point. <laughs> but, he, but no, he's the, the uh, most interesting person who ever lived, as far as I'm concerned. So, you know. well, okay, so you're interested in him. Tell me about the toilets, because you, oh, yeah. when you, the first thought. Yeah, when I have. said toilet, I was worried yeah. people were going to think, oh, he doesn't think well of Abraham Lincoln. Right. But in fact, I think very well of him. <laughs> uh, there's a, so this is the type of writing I never got to do on the show, and, the sh- and my, it was such a busy job, and I'm sure plenty of people here have their own writing that they want to do in addition to what they do professionally, and it's hard to find the time and the energy to do that. And my, my first piece of advice is leave your job. Uh, <laughs> it really helped me <laughs> to find that time. Uh, but my second is, uh, I mean, just finding that time anywhere. Like the comics you were talking about, I was writing on the subway almost entirely in a handwriting in a notebook, and then I had to, I'd have to find the time somewhere to, to type it up. And I was almost missing deadlines, not because I hadn't written it, but because I didn't have the time to sit down and type them. But uh, the, there was a story I've been wanting to write for a long time, and I finally got to <laughs> write it uh, just a few weeks ago. It was a short story about, I was trying to think of, Abraham Lincoln is such a, such a monumental historic figure in a way that it's hard to remember what a human being he was. And it's very easy to not treat him like a human being. And it's that way with all historical figures. We're all celebrated figures. And so I wanted to write a story where Abraham Lincoln is using the toilet and what goes through, what's just going through his mind during that time. And for years, I've been wanting to write this. And then a few weeks ago, I finally got to like write a first draft of it. And I was very happy with how it came out. And it's the classiest uh, handling of Abraham Lincoln using the toilet that I think could, could come out of it. It was really, and I, I, found, I feel like I found, a way, I found a way to get through it to a really beautiful thing at the end. But, uh, but it's, 
but, it, but it just coming from, would this person, I mean, I'm, I'm going to be telling lots of stories about visiting famous people's graves, I guess. But the, uh, <laughs> like, my wife was very, was kind enough to come with me to Springfield, Illinois, so I could see his, thank you, that's, uh, so I could see his tomb and his house and everything. And at his tomb, it struck me, I'm never going to be able to meet this person in a way that it hadn't before, that he died over 100 years before I was born. Like, there was never, no matter how much I learned about him, I'm never going to know him. So similar to knowing John or Spider-Man, people that think, you know, these characters were people that I feel like I've gotten a sense of how they think or talk because I've spent time with them. Like, I wanted to put myself in that sort of position with Abraham Lincoln. It was like, well, what's the most humanizing experience I can think of for him? Oh, he's using the toilet. It's not going well. And then so, and like what, and I feel, and it, and it was really, I felt like, it's a story no one will ever, I'm gonna submit it places to get it published, no one's ever gonna see it. But it's, but uh, I was very happy with how it came out, so. And did you actually visit his toilet? Well, at his house in Springfield, there's an outhouse there, and the park trooper said it's not the original outhouse because we asked him, but it was one at a farm where Lincoln had done work. That was a, the farmer was a client of Lincoln's at one point, and they knew Lincoln had eaten dinner there at least once or twice. So they had a reasonable assumption that he used it. So, and I was really I was impressed by the by the drive for historical accuracy that they weren't just going to throw up any outhouse. <laughs> It had one that was potentially one that he used, but they'd be very open about like, we can't, this is the historical provenance of this is very clear, like it was never actually at the house, so. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> what? I think it was an ooh. Oh, oh. <laughs> um, so I, I like the analogy between uh, Lincoln and John and Spider-Man. Um, it sounds like the beginning of like a, a great story. I think you say, aside from my parents, you say, Oh, who are the people who had a big impact on your life? Oh, well, and Lincoln listen. and John and Spider-Man, I guess. Yeah, so. <laughs> it's good company. Yeah. Uh, what have comics... One, one of them is a real living well, person. <laughs> yeah. You've met him, at least. Yeah. yeah. Well, I feel like... Well, that's the thing. is Spider-Man's a fictional character, but I've written for him, so I feel like I've worked... I know him in a way that... Or I've interacted with him in a you way put that... words in his mouth. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, my totally. relationship with him is not totally different from my relationship with John, you know? <laughs> <laughs> what's what, what's Spider-Man gonna say in this situation that he would believe, and he's gonna he's gonna say jokes anyway? It was all yeah, they're very similar. It might be the same guy. I've never seen them in the same room together. I like this idea. Um, what is it that comics have taught you about storytelling? Um, a couple of things. Pacing mm -hmm. is a big thing, and voice and getting a getting a character's voice clear because as a comic book reader you know when a character is speaking out of voice because you've spent so much time with them and you have this idea in your head of who this character is from all the time, all the years you've, in my case, too many years spent reading children's entertainment books, <laughs> but, uh, which are really good though, a lot of them. But, uh, but also, how to see someone develop over time. Uh, a lot of the comics have been around for a long time, the, the big ones anyway, and you've seen these characters grow, sometimes minimally, but in some ways over time, to become sort of a fully formed personality. And if anything, that's taught me less about writing and more about just interacting with people. The idea that like they change over time and there's not a specific event that makes someone who they are necessarily, but just the adding up all the, all the different issues of somebody. There's hundreds of issues in someone's life. Uh, like, I mean like comic book issues, not like emotional issues. <laughs> but uh, some people do have hundreds of issues. But uh, the, uh, and there's a, 
kind of a comprehensive person that comes out of it, you know. And in okay. writing, it's over over all that time. In writing, it's writing something. And in writing comics, writing something that is a moment of time, but is informed by all the things that came before it. And I and that might be applicable to institutional stuff, just in knowing the context of what you're writing, and that even though you're writing this one thing, it's informed by the history of the organization or the history of the thing that you're writing about or that everything is everything is within a within an ongoing context and not just a one moment in time you know i'm being very very philosophical it, it, in this one yeah it, it's I've, important i've run out of stories of visiting famous people's graves so <laughs> that's not true <laughs> there are more. There are more. None of them so far have been applicable, but that's, you know. More graves, really? Yeah, well, like Teddy Roosevelt's grave and Franklin Roosevelt's grave. And you can't see them otherwise, you know, it's, that's the place they are. But anyway, that's, they're not going to come to you. That's, <laughs> yeah. um, among the other things that you've been doing, uh, in addition to The Daily Show, um, you created a podcast. Uh, called Flophouse. Well, technically, it was created by two friends of mine. Two friends. And I joined very early on. Okay. Uh, this is the Flophouse podcast. And it is a podcast about uh, bad, bad, bad movies. movies. Yeah. And not just bad movies, but epically. Hopefully the worst movies that we could find. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, and you have a fanatical following uh, mm -hmm. of, of fans. It, it frightens my wife. Greatly. <laughs> They're yeah. serious. Um, they uh, really, you've created a community. And comic books also sort of have communities that are built around them that are um, super emphatic about their love of the characters, and they follow every step. Um, one of the things that we try to do here um, with, with some, some success is to try to build communities around our ideas mm -hmm. and around um, the issues that our, our foundations are funding. Do you have any secrets about how to, or tips on how to build community? Not really, but <laughs> I don't know. Well, with ours, with the podcast, for instance, it's something that we did just from our own passion out of that subject of movies in general and bad movies in particular. And because the internet exists now, and you can anyone can put anything on the internet, and it's available for people to find if they stumble on it or are looking for it. Over, it took us a period of years. You know, we've been doing it now for like eight years or something like that, or seven or eight years, that it was like a, like a the specific gravity of that subject has pulled in all these people who felt like we were, if it, the, the thing we hear the most is when people listen to it is like, oh, it feels like I'm hanging out with my friends when I listen to it. And so there was a sense of like having a specific interest and then building an atmosphere where people felt a kinship to it or felt like it was representing a part of their life or representing what they hoped it was like when their friends hung out with them and then just kind of letting that happen and since then we've been trying to cultivate it more just in like like a while ago we put up like a Facebook page for the for the podcast and then a lot of our fans came and turned it into like mini Facebook within regular Facebook where they talk about stuff that's totally unrelated to the podcast and uh, I can't find anything. Sometimes I'm looking for a specific post and I can't find it because there's all this other junk that I don't know anything about. But the, uh, there was a certain amount, I think, of just letting it happen, which is not the ideal thing when you're actively trying to do it. But focusing more on, I think, on the thing you're saying and the thing you're creating and less on how to drive people to it, but more on that and making sure it's something that people want when they see it. 
community uh, seems builds like, out of that. Yeah, and the, the community, and you'll get a, it feels like we have a longer, a very tight community and a longer lasting one for that reason that we weren't like constantly tweeting out or constantly like actively, uh, what's the word? Not evangelizing, but like We're promoting uh, this. Yeah, yeah, because okay. we've done very little promotion. In fact, criminally little promotion. We should be putting it's more. It's a private page. Should, yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, you have to be a member of the Facebook page to post there or read stuff. But uh, that it was. Uh, what was the what was the thought I was thinking of? I totally I totally lost track. Where was going? I blame that. Yeah, that's that's the problem. <laughs> In which so I blame you. But the but but uh, providing that thing that people felt like they wanted or felt but didn't know it until they saw it, and then being nice to those people and not over going after them, you know? Like, there are plenty of times when I've, like, either followed somebody on Twitter or I've started listening to a podcast or something, and their own promotion becomes so heavy that it drives me away. Right. Uh, and I think that it helps that we haven't been doing that. There's probably a middle ground where you can promote it at a yeah. point where, People are intrigued but not repelled. But if you go too far, then people get repelled, and they're like, "I get it. Okay, I get it." They're like, "I would like I believe in what you're doing, but I never want to donate money to you again because you won't <laughs> you won't stop bothering me." Yes. Uh, or like, "I liked this, but now I don't like the things around it." Uh, it's I guess respecting the people that you're trying to drive to you enough that you don't try to force them. You know, it's all very it's all very zen. It's Great. the kind of thing you can really do when you're not trying to do it. So. Yeah, that's, that's my advice, I guess, is don't try so hard. <laughs> that's good advice. Um, we're going to go to questions in a minute, and I just wanted to, to give people a heads up. If you have questions, just stand up so that um, uh, they can hand you the microphone, and they will come to you so that we can make sure, and, and be sure to introduce yourself and your organization. We can be sure to get you on, on the and air. And if we don't have enough time for all the questions about Abraham Lincoln, then I will, I'm happy to talk to people afterwards about him. <laughs> I can't, can't not talk about it. No. So. Well, so I, I, before we get to, we have a couple of Twitter questions that got in early, but um, uh, you left The Daily Show in July? Uh, in, in early August. In early August. It was one, one week into August when John's last show was also my last show. Okay. Uh, because for a number of reasons, mainly because I just didn't get to see my son very much. And he's a little boy, he's just a toddler, and he's very cute. And <laughs> I would see him for an hour in the morning, and then when I, by the time I got home, he was asleep. And I'd see him on the weekends, and it was like, oh, I'm getting as much time with him as like I would if I was divorced. This is like this is <laughs> like that's not the way I want my life to be. So, but uh, the uh, so that's yeah. So I was with them for a long time until just recently. Until yeah. recently. And um, I'm very I've been very excited about the new show they've been doing. I was excited knowing it was coming. Did you check out. it out? I saw the first couple episodes. I haven't seen last night's yet, okay. uh, but I think they're they're coming into their own very quickly, very nicely. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, and every time I watch it, or I talk about it, my wife goes, do you, do you wish you were there working with them? And I go, no, I don't need to do that anymore. That's OK. <laughs> Maybe someday. But. What happens when news happens? What happens to that muscle? I'm a former journalist, and when news breaks, it immediately shows up from reporter friends who send it to me before it even breaks. And my first impulse is to think, is my bag packed? Like, can I go and cover this? What do you do when you hear now news that previously would have sent you right into your writer's room? I, I, start, I kind of unconsciously start thinking about, 
oh, well, well how is John going to want to talk about this? Like, what's he going to feel about this? What, what can we say about it? And then I have to remind myself, like, you don't have to worry about that right now. And then it's like such a big relief. And it means that <laughs> I can spend time looking at news stories that we would not have done on the show because there's not a lot of humor potential in them. Uh, and I don't have to look at other stories that we would be doing on the show because I like, like there was a, there was a, the big like three hour CNN Republican debate and uh, when I, and we were supposed to record an episode of the podcast that night and we had to reschedule it uh, because one of the co-hosts, Dan McCoy, who is a writer for the show, and he was like, oh yeah, I'm gonna have to stay late to watch that debate. And I was like, oh, there's a debate? Well, all right, okay. <laughs> and there was a very freeing feeling to that. But there's still a sense of like, what, how do I, okay, how are we gonna handle this? What's the, was the I have to, that I have to put the brakes on, you know, for the moment. There's a story I read once about one of Bob Hope's writers when Kennedy was assassinated, that he was driving over to see Bob Hope about something, I don't think it was to inform him about the news, but and in, his, in his head on the drive, he kept thinking about jokes about the assassination because he was so primed to write jokes about current events wow. that he just couldn't stop his head from doing it. And I remember reading that story and it made me feel so much better about my own reaction to those types of things. Because it's like, oh, other people have had that problem too. That's great. You know, <laughs> it's not just it, you. you build it into this kind of like program in your head and it, and it just keeps running, you know. So. And you've managed to tame that. Mostly, yeah. Has anything happened in the last month that has made it difficult for you to, <laughs> to curb that impulse? Yeah. No. No? Because I think about no, there's all, been no tempting news. Not, I mean, when I, th I weigh that against being able to write that Lincoln toilet story, and it's just like it's not. <laughs> for at this point in my life, that's that's what I want to be doing. So you know, yeah, that's always going to be the math there. Yeah, okay. and to, and uh, or I think of, or thinking about how much time that took away from family, and mm -hmm. it's it's a it's like the program starts running, and then I go like, no, you don't need to do that. There's this other stuff that that you're going to be focusing on for a little bit at least. Yeah. You know? No, that's awesome. All right, um, I'm gonna start with a couple of Twitter questions that we've okay. gotten I'll already. Answer, I'll try to answer more shortly, because I know I have a tendency <laughs> to continue talking forever. I'm gonna start with comics. Okay. This is a question from Jesse Salazar. Yeah. Who was, was up here earlier. He was, uh, the, he was here. He was here. Hey, there you thanks are. for saying Jesse. those nice things. Um, and he's, a, he, he's the Vice President of Communications for the Council on Foundations. And uh, he wanted to, talk, to ask you about Ta-Nehisi Coates, mm -hmm. who is the newly coined um, MacArthur Fellow and writer who will write the he's new Black Panther comic. He's officially a genius, and he's going to write the new Black Panther comic. Mm -hmm. What is it about comics that makes them so ripe for shaping social debate? Uh, maybe because they, are, they function as dramatic metaphors for things in a way that can be very symbolic, uh, kind of like blatantly symbolic, that you can't get away with as much when you're dealing with realistic human beings and stories. There's, one of the things that I always loved about Marvel Comics growing up is that the characters, when they were punching each other, would always be kind of like shouting their philosophies at each other. <laughs> so there would be a lot of like, no, the, the stronger must, must dominate and punch. And then, you know, <laughs> Spider-Man would kick the guy in the chin and be like, well, what about ordinary people? You know, like they, that's, they, <laughs> like, they would just kind of be bellowing how they felt at each other. And it meant that they could be having, they could be in a way, like these kind of very basic but debates about how the world works while wearing like circus costumes and hitting each other and things like that. But because the world, maybe because the world is so heightened already, it allows you to tackle those issues in a way that doesn't feel like you are either 
approaching them to from the wrong scope, you know, like or I don't know. Tuck your social commentary in. Kind of like between it, you can do it. You can just kind of come out and say things because the characters are saving the world on a regular basis anyway. So to have them try to solve some huge world-changing problem, you know, is a way that you can't really do usually in like a movie or a short story without it feeling silly. It still feels silly in a comic, but it feels like acceptably silly, you know. <laughs> but I'm looking forward to that book. I'm wondering what it's going to be like. It's it, he'll have to he'll have to uh, figure out the tension between the fact that. The Black Panther is not African-American, but is African. Exactly, so it's, yeah. they, in the past, I think they've tried to do that, and they'll have him be like in, this, in New York or something, but it feels a little, but it's not where he's from, and well, he'll figure it out. He's a genius. He'll figure it out. <laughs> they'll have set, but there's a, the, the gold standard of that book for me is uh, the writer Christopher Priest's run on it uh, about 15 or more years ago. And so that's the, that's the gauntlet I'm throwing down to him. He has to be as good as Christopher Priest. Runs. Christopher Reese. Priest. Priest. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but I'm excited to read it. So. I mean, if I would, if he would like any help with it, <laughs> I'd be happy to offer that, you know. I think he can do it, but if he's looking for somebody to, like, punch it up, then, you know, that's, <laughs> I can work with him on that. That's, you can throw Spider-Man in there. Oh, Spider-Man will end up in there at some point. Okay. It's a Marvel book. They're gonna <laughs> at some point they're gonna be like, let's get some sales on this. Throw Spider-Man in there. You know? They did a. Uh, there was a years ago. There was a, a comic book adaptation of the movie Meteor Man. The uh, 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 Robert Townsend. The uh, it just, which was a superhero comedy. And Marvel did a six-issue series, and Spider-Man showed up in the middle of it for no reason. Like he's not in the movie. It's a, he's not part of the Marvel universe. But they were like, get some sales on this. Throw Spider-Man in. Uh, this question is from Jesse Beeson, I see a friend, uh, who, is, uh, who is with Northwest Health Foundation in Portland, Oregon. Um, he asks, does political humor have a responsibility to change the narrative? In other words, is it enough to point out the idiocy of American politics? Uh, I think it has the potential to, but not the responsibility to. Once you, I feel like once you put that responsibility on it, then the humor becomes secondary to the purpose. And that's not the way to get to the best humor. Uh, humor is a flawed tool on its own because I feel like by nature it's about, dig it's, it's hard to be humorous in a positive way. It's very easy to like dig at something humorously. Uh, so it's, it's hard to put that much weight on it because it can only do so much in terms of criticizing. It can, it can inform people and alert people. And like last week, tonight, does a great job of alerting people to things they may not have known about and showing them the problem. But once you get into the realm of like, it feels like to change the narrative, you need to suggest a solution a lot of the time. And humor may not be able to do that. There'd be times we would have meetings where we'd be talking about the Middle East or something. And John would be like, but how, how would we solve this problem? And we're like, I don't know. Like, this. <laughs> like that, if we knew, we wouldn't be doing this. Like, we'd be, we'd be solving the problem. And there, it's, uh, especially if a, if a show is meant to be humorous first and uh, informational second, I feel like it's, it will benefit them and the viewer and other people more if, it, if the humor is strong. It feels like a show that is funny that people will watch and will get something from is more powerful often than it. something that is overtly about changing things but has a humorous angle to it, you know? 
but I could be wrong about that. It feels like m very few of the great social uh, injustices have been righted by humorists. Like, they'll like highlight it, but, but usually somebody who's serious about what they're doing has to step in and do something about it, you know. That's a good call. Yeah. They, there's, a, there's a thing that Stephen Colbert says in interviews a lot that I think Peter Cook said before him. He's usually quoting Peter Cook about how like the best satire ever was in Weimar Germany when the Nazis were first rising up and like it, it sure did it did the word job on them you know like that that was the top satire that there ever was and it was did not do it didn't really do the job that it was hoping yeah. for but so I don't know who originally said that but I'm gonna I'm gonna give Peter Cook credit through Stephen Colbert but works for me yeah okay. all right I've got one more Twitter question before we go to the audience um, These people are starved to ask They're questions. starved. Um, this question comes from Cynthia Olson, who's the comms director for Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America. Are you in here, Cynthia? There you are. Um, she tweeted earlier. Thanks for coming. <laughs> uh, she asked about the internship program for vets. Oh, yeah. And, um, and that it's inspired other employees to or employers to offer similar opportunities. How did it come about? Uh, I... The, Full details of that, I don't know for sure because it was, I was, I wish I could say I had more involvement with that program than I do because I have minimal, but, or had minimal, but that was, but very much from John, I think, seeing an, a, an absence of programs that were not just about like bringing a veteran in for the day and showing like, this is how this place works. Anyway, good luck, see ya. <laughs> but about actually placing them. And so we have this program that, I, I'm not part, I'm gonna keep talking as if I'm there, but they, uh, this, uh, this program that brings groups of veterans in and they see how the show gets put together and then it ends with, they have meetings with people from different departments and then it ends with a job fair where different employers come and they meet up. And a number of people have gotten jobs from it. We've hired some people from it who are fantastic at their jobs. And I think it was, you know, veterans care and veterans issues is a big, is a big important issue for John. It's something that's about as close to him as anything I can think of. And I think he just saw that there was an absence of programs that were doing that middle step. That like you can tell a veteran how something works and then step three is they get a job. But the step two of how do they find that job or how does the employer find them, nobody was filling yeah. or not enough people were filling. And, and so it came from that. And I think the, and the goal from it was to get people jobs and to try to, it wasn't one of those things where we were like, hey, they stole our idea, that other company that's doing this. You know, like, we want other people to do that. And it's, uh, it's another example of actively looking at a problem and trying to like actively think of a solution that he said, this is something that's a problem. How do we, how can I do something about it that's not just I can go on TV and I can say, this is a problem, but how can I do something more than just that? Is, if I was putting myself in his head, maybe the way he was thinking about it. You know? I have a disclaimer that I, don't, I cannot claim knowledge of what goes on inside John's head or anybody else's. You know? but, that, but that kind of active focus on things. Yeah, that's great. Were there questions? I'd like to open it up. We've got somebody right up front. Your mic's coming at you from both directions. If you know semaphore and you have semaphore <laughs> flags, we could answer them that way. I don't know semaphore, but I can guess at what the, what the questions are. Um, hi, Elliot. Hi. Um, I'm Asana Mortazavi with the David and Lucille Packard Foundation. Um, and I was wondering if you can share some of your Ghostbuster jokes. 
Uh, you, thank you. You planted that question, yeah. didn't you? Yeah, that was, thanks. <laughs> thank you for asking. I'll pay you afterwards. There's, they were all situational. I can't remember them. There was, when the 25th anniversary of Ghostbusters came up in 2009, I was pushing really hard that we should do a week of Zens where there are just clips from Ghostbusters that would say, Happy 25th, Ghostbusters. But then I also wanted them to be Christmas-themed because I thought it would be really funny to, to like make the audience question what exactly we were celebrating here, but nobody was interested. It, did not, it was not an idea that went very far. Uh, but it was a lot of just comparing situations to Ghostbusters or trying to use clips from it. Or, it was, you know, it's a big thing for me. It's a regret. Yeah. Well, someday when I do when I do a Daily Show type show that's just coverage of Ghostbusters, <laughs> your Daily Ghost. Is that a hand? Uh, hi, I'm Katie. I'm with a nonprofit called the Data Quality Campaign, and this question goes back to referencing Stuart as like a political dad. I feel like that comes from this sort of trust and this ethical presence that he brings. Um, and I feel like that's essential to sort of the conversion from, from comedy to, to inspiring action. And I was just wondering how you, how you sort of embed that into, into comedic writing and how you balance you know, the comedy with the, the serious sort of injustice that um, he often brought to the show. Mm -hmm. I mean, in, in his case, he's brilliant. So he, that so that helped, but uh, a, a lot of it I think was being honest about how we felt about things and not telling jokes that even if they were a funny joke did not accurately sum up how we felt about a thing or didn't that uh, feeling like it was okay to for John to put out there how he feels about something and that the audience will respond to it honestly either by agreeing or if they don't agree at least recognizing that he's not playing a part or just posing or something like that. Uh, and so the comedy and the seriousness would flow from that to a certain extent. You know, the, uh, if, it, if you mean like a mix of, how do we figure out the mix of like goofiness, goofiness and seriousness, uh, it was a lot of like, a, like boating down a river rapid, you know, just kind of like trying to go with the momentum of where the story was taking us. Uh, but in general, I think the only way to earn the kind of trust that John had and the kind of that feeling of political dad was just to be open the way that he was and not to ever say something because he thought it was the thing people wanted him to say or for us to write something because it was an easy way to get out of an act or an easy way to make a joke about something or, and the, the conversations we would have in meetings where we would say, well, how would we solve this? Which were very frustrating to me many times because I didn't know, like I was saying. Uh, those were helpful because we could figure out how we felt about things. A lot of our meetings were divided between like joking around and nonsense and goofiness. And I felt like I was better at providing that and genuinely talking about how we felt about things so that we could get a sense of what's our immediate reaction to this story, but then what's our reaction once we talk about it and think about it more and, and actually get to know it, that we're not just going off of our first instinct, you know? That maybe that first instinct was right, or maybe it informs what we're thinking, but 
once we really learn what this is, how do we feel about that? And so there were a number of stories. I wouldn't say there were stories where we were like, that's great, and then we learn more about it. We're like, that's terrible. But there were stories like where we would see that the news was not covering them accurately, and we would have to do a lot of self-education because the easy thing would be, would be to just kind of go along with the pack and just take it for granted what the news was saying. But then sometimes we'd have to, like there was a, there was this bill that was being called the Monsanto Protection Act that was about lawsuits about something. And I mean, the official name wasn't the Monsanto Protection Act, but, uh, and the news was covering it in a very shallow way. And we had, we talked about it a lot. And Adam Chodakoff, our main, you know, in, uh, super researcher, super computer brain, uh, he talked to a lot of, like, people who were professors in agricultural law and in copyright law and things like that to figure out what does this bill actually say? Does it say what the news says it says? And it was doing all that work that helped us to realize like, oh, okay, we, our feelings on this are a little more complicated than we originally thought. Uh, and being open about that, you know, not, and not, we're, and think, hope, knowing that we can disagree with our core audience without them throwing up their hands and, and being outraged and walking away. We knew that anytime we did a headline that was criticizing Obama, we knew it would take the audience a little bit longer to get on board. Whereas like if we put Bill O'Reilly or, or Dick Cheney on screen, the audience would be like, yeah, whatever you say next, I agree with. <laughs> but not being, not being afraid of that and not just following along with it. This is what they want from us. We know they like it. Let's just give it to them. But uh, being, and I hope that audiences saw John saying what he felt and what he thought and said like, okay, well, I don't know if I totally agree with you, but like I get that you believe what you're saying, so I'll think about it, you know. That just honesty seems like the main thing. Yeah. Question over here, and up in front. You're better at spotting people's hands than I am. I just like, it's just a blur to me. <laughs> um, I'm Ken from the New York Public Library. Um, for the New York Public Library? Yes. I'm a big fan of that library. <laughs> Tell people, there's a Ghostbusters connection, of course, right? Oh, yeah, well, I'm not gonna say that's not, that's not part of it, yeah. Just what you know. It was, when I was, a, when I was a kid, and I grew up in New Jersey, and we'd go into New York, and if we were walking by the library, my mom would be like, that's the Ghostbusters library. <laughs> I'd be like, you're right, it is. I'm not here to tell you that we also have books, but I will also say that um, among the things that most impressed me about Stewart's um, career and at the show is that he quit, that he's you know, moved, moved, moved along. I think that's just a really interesting message to kind of be at the height of one's career and, and move along. So I'm sure you all talked and thought about that a lot internally. What, what, how did that you experienced that. Uh, and talked about it in terms of before he made the decision or after he made the decision? Just, he, just making the decision. I mean, we can all look at political figures or sports figures who stay too long or um, very, off, very rarely do you see people leave at the right time in the apex of their career to go on and do other things. And mm -hmm. I was inspired by that. I just wondered what, what, what folks, what you thought about that or how folks experienced that. I, I think I was, I was fairly inspired by it too. Yeah, that, uh, and knowing that he's a, you know, active is the, is the word that I keep going to. Like, he wants to do things actively. He never, it felt like never wanted to do something with half effort or just because he knew how to do it uh, and was always challenging himself. And that's something that was very inspiring to me. Uh, the discussion 
when we knew he was leaving uh, um, around the show, was more like, what's going to happen to us? What are, where are, do we still have jobs? What's going on? So I think for a lot of people, it's, it's going to take time for them to figure out kind of what, what it meant for him and what it really felt like. And, uh, and it did feel weirdly from the media attention like he was dying. There was, that, there was the, the show after he announced where he was like, I'm not, <laughs> am I dying? And uh, the, uh, so the, uh, it was, I don't know, it's, it's hard to look at it objectively when it had such a big impact on my daily life. Um, so from, from my own point of view, it's, there is something inspiring about it, but it's difficult for me to separate that from my own regular feelings. So ask me again in like 30 years, <laughs> and I think I'll be able to do it. And uh, people say a lot, they're like, what are we gonna do without John? And the, I feel like the situation now is so much different now that he's leaving than when he started, when there were n not really any other shows doing what we were doing. And now I feel like there are so many shows doing what we were doing and doing it well that this is me, uh, this is me treating him like a, John like a fictional character again. But, uh, but maybe he was like, you know what, I'm not, now I don't need to be the only one. You know, these other people are here. I can, you know, very like George Washington moment of like, oh, the Republic is strong enough. I'll go, <laughs> I'll go, I'll go back to the farm now. But. That's, uh, he would not want to be compared to George Washington, I'm sure. That, like, he would probably be very uncomfortable with that. But, uh, but there's, there's, it feels like there's a, you know, if, if John being a dad is the metaphor, then like, there's a lot of like John's kids out there who are, who are doing these, doing shows like this that are performing a similar function. So the, may, maybe there was a sense of like, if you're not the only one, then you can afford to, to stop doing it. I don't know. I mean, it, most likely he was just tired. I don't know. That's the, that, was, that was my main reason for going, just being tired. There's a question up here, or a couple questions up front. Actually. I'm so excited that I got to talk to somebody from the public library. Anyway, not to, not to steal your thunder. Your question's going to be great. <laughs> Can you hear me? Uh, yes. yes, there it is. Okay, my name is Justine Hebron. I'm from Next Generation in San Francisco, and I was at the rally to restore sanity. Me too. Um, which was fantastic. You, where, where, how far were you from the stage? Um, far. Okay. Yeah. That was yeah. that was most people's experience. Yeah, but but well, that was what was I think so interesting to me. So I was there with my brother who was wearing a bear costume. It's a long story, but what? I get it. Yeah, yeah, That's, right. Uh, I know. Yeah, yeah. It to me. yeah. Um, but what? Uh, struck me was the amount of people that came. I mean, I think it was close to 200,000 people or something, I don't know or that number. much. I don't know. It was a huge amount of people. It was a lot. It was many more people than we expected. Yeah. Right. So I think that that was my question. How did that? You know, doing the show on a daily basis, and you know, for so many years, was it a different experience to be able to look out on you know on that sea of people, and and did you have a different experience of an audience? Because people loved it. People were happy that day. I hope so. Uh, I don't know. That's a good question. It's something I haven't. I haven't. Th like that's. I have a thing. Uh, a thing that I call daily show memory, where we don't really remember most of the stuff that we did, and time is dilated in a weird sense, where the rally feels like it was last year, and it feels like it was 20 years ago at the same time. Um, the from. A, I was kind of looking at it from afar too, because I was. Uh, 
staff writer at the time, and I was so focused on the day-to-day -day stuff that it felt like the rally was this big thing that was going on on the side that I was excited about, but I didn't know entirely what they were doing. Um, but I don't know, it was very exciting to see that many people wanting to be a part of it, and R2-D2 was there, so that was pretty exciting. <laughs> and I did not get to take a picture with him, but maybe someday. Uh, it was a, but it was a very, it was kind of a strange event. There was, I, at, when it was over, I got to go up on the stage and just see like all the people stretching way, way, way back. And it was very strange. It was like the, uh, being at the head of this like enormous army. But then the army was there mainly just to have a good time and wear bear costumes. And like, <laughs> like a very undisciplined army. But cuddly. Yeah, very cuddly army, yeah. yeah. Is this on? Yes. 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 Sorry. Hi, I'm Tally Smith with Smith & Connors out of Portland, Oregon. Um, thank you for being here. This has been great. I, uh, I think the thing for me that relates really well to what is going on here and the people in the audience is that the Daily Show and what you and John and your, you know, all the staff did there was to really create a voice for people and to, to filter the news, the events, the, all of the things that we are faced with, um, and to filter it through humor, but also that real authenticity, which I think is what, what brought people back, right? Because like that, that's his voice, that's John's voice, it's what you, you all have helped to create. Um, and I honestly think that that's a huge loss for us. Um, even with the shows that are out now, John had you know, brought such depth of emotion and, and real authenticity, which you don't see very often. Um, and so I have two things. One is a, like, when you read the news now, I just wonder, you know, processing it through humor must be a really nice relief. No, uh, no. It feels like the exact opposite. Really? I, I used to say all the time to, uh, to people who work with, I was like, the news has it easy, because they can just say things. Like, they don't have to make them funny while they're saying them. Like, it's a big, it's a big challenge. So it's like uh, providing relief to others, but for us it was, or for just speaking for myself, it was very, like, a lot of work and, and very stressful. So. so the work was stressful, but, I mean, to be able to laugh about it and to, you know, that didn't feel, you never kind of reveled in that. Uh, I mean, we laughed about lots of other stuff that was, that was, <laughs> that was more fun, but uh, the, the it was a, I mean, a lot of, I got a lot of satisfaction out of it and out of being able to work with people who were so good at it. And there were times when other people would say jokes at the, at the show where maybe it was a, it gave me some relief about something. But there was, from speaking for myself, and I, I can only speak for myself, there was never a time where I was like, thank goodness I have jokes to help me through this. It was always like, why do I have to write jokes about this stuff like this? <laughs> Like the news, they can just say a terrible thing happened. Like they don't have to make a joke about it. But, uh, but that's the that's the way it is. Our job was not to like we had a lot of fun making that show. But our job was was not to have fun. Our job was to make the best show so other people would enjoy it. And the uh, I used to say all the time that I had a lot of sayings that the other writers I think are happy to not have to listen to anymore. It's like uh, in. Uh, in Fiddler on the Roof, Laser Wolf says to Teffy, he goes, I'm not going to be your son-in-law. I don't have to listen to your sayings. But uh, that, the, uh, that the, the reason they paid us wasn't to write jokes. 
because we were all going to be writing jokes anyway in our spare time. Like, that's what we liked to do. The reason they paid us was to rewrite the jokes we had and to write specific jokes. And so, like, the work was, like, I love writing comedy, and I get so much fun out of it, but the work was, you don't get to, you're not choosing what you're going to write about today. You have to write about this, because this is what happened. And even if you don't feel like that's the thing you want to write about, like, you have to do it. That's the job. Um, and then when it was all done, I had the relief of being like, I don't have to write jokes about that again until like a week later when the exact same story would happen and we'd have to do, <laughs> and then the challenge was, well, we did those jokes. What are we going to do this time? When we were, uh, one of the, we had this, when we come up with the over the shoulders, the, the graphic puns that are on John's shoulder, we, when uh, the healthcare bill was being debated and sent through and then they did the votes on it years ago at the beginning of Obama's presidency, we ran out of health puns relatively quickly, and it became so torturous to like, we're just trying so hard to come up with new ways to pun off of health or healthcare, or it was so good for us that there's more than one Hellraiser movie, because we could do Hellraiser a couple times, <laughs> but it was, uh, but that was the tough part of it, you know. That was, the, that was the work of it, and in some ways it was more noble because it was, it was work rather than play or something, I don't know. That's, Uh, Amber with Curtis Creative from Kentucky. Um, well, thank you for making me laugh for so many years, very much. Thank you for watching <laughs> and laughing at it. Yeah. Um, it, would have been, about... it would have been really disappointing for us if we didn't have laughter when, we, when John said things. Yeah, good <laughs> job. Good job. My question is about um, audience and how you think about audience. Is it overwhelming to think about the entire nation? And did you write for the entire nation, or was it easier to think about writing to one person? I mean, in, in my mind, it was, I was writing for John. And I wanted, to, I wanted to write something that he was satisfied with and that he liked and that hopefully he thought was funny. And if the audience liked that too, then that was great. And I trusted that if John liked it, the audience would like it because John knew his audience so well and, and knows what he's doing so well. Uh, but uh, when I was writing, I was, it, was, it was very rarely with thinking of like, how will, the, how will the nation respond to this? Or like even if I was thinking about how our audience would respond to this, it would be like, uh, oh, this like, ah, oh, I don't want, I should, this is a, there's a good pot joke here, but if I write it in, the audience is gonna go woo, and then I'll, like, they're gonna applaud because we mentioned marijuana, and I don't wanna do that, you know? <laughs> like, the, uh, being a comedy writer, I am quicker to uh, complain about things than to look at them in a positive way. So I think I did more complaining to myself about the audience than anything else. But, but for me, the audience was, uh, for the writing was John. John was the person that I wanted to reach. And I knew that he knew what he was doing. And if he, if he was really into something, then it was you know, 99% likely that the, that the audience would be into it too. So I think it's, in writing, maybe that's the, the thing is to like pick your key person or your key like tiny audience that is a good marker for you of how other people would respond, or even whose respect you care about. Like, that, like if I wrote something and John respected it, then that was worth much more to me than if it was, than if like a million people laughed at it or something like that, you know? So I think write stuff for John and see what he feels about it. And then, <laughs> just mail it to him. We've gotten way over, but thank you so much for staying and, um, and asking questions. And I think you're here. Yeah, thank you so much for coming. Oh, this is for you. Oh, for me. Oh, oh. <laughs>
Thank you so much for having me. This has been this has been great. I enjoyed it. I don't know if you guys did, but I did. So that's so I feel like I you know it's worth it. I don't know. Thanks.